You can open your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. And we're going to read Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17 this morning. Uh, The passage we're going to focus on is uh, verses 12 through 17, but we're going to back up a little bit since it's been a couple weeks, and we're going to get some context. And when you find that passage, you can go ahead and stand with us for the reading of God's Word. We stand out of respect for God's Word, because when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so we stand out of respect um, if you are able to. So, Matthew 21 Verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, they then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This has taken place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, it has been a couple weeks since we've uh, been in Matthew. I'm thankful to Andre for covering the pulpit for those weeks, and I'm thankful to be able to jump into Matthew this week. Just remember, what is Matthew all about? Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. It's all about uh, God's kingdom, God's kingdom through his Messiah reigning over the whole world. And uh, what Matthew is doing, he's speaking to a Jewish Christian audience that would have been familiar with that Old Testament kingdom. And he's teaching them, uh, he's proving to them, reproving to them, Jesus is the true king. You see, Jesus came, but he wasn't looking like the Messiah and the king they thought, the Jews thought he was going to be. So Matthew goes along and says, yes, Jesus is actually king. But then the question would be, well, why didn't the kingdom promise from of old come? And Matthew also in his gospel reflects on, well, when is that kingdom going to come? How is it going to come in connection with Jesus being the true king? And then finally, Matthew is aiming at, well, how do you live? How do you live if Jesus is the true king and his kingdom is going to come in the future, but not yet? And uh, how do you live in light of that reality now, especially as a Jewish Christian, where you're breaking from uh, your Jewish friends and neighbors that are not embracing Jesus as the Messiah and not embracing him as king? How do you live? How do you live in this time? 
And so Matthew is, fun, uh, is structured around five main teaching sections where uh, Jesus instructs disciples, how do you live? How do you live in this time? And then surrounding those teaching sections is narrative. And we are in a narrative section. And uh, where we were the last time uh, we were in this on Palm Sunday was Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. This has been an anticipated event because from chapter 16, from chapter 16, Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, but I'm going there to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And when he enters Jerusalem, all, everything is out in the open. There's no more hiding his claims to be the son of David, to be the true and rightful king. He gets on a couple of donkeys and rides as that king that was promised in Zechariah and elsewhere in the Old Testament into Jerusalem. He is out in the open. He is saying, I am um, your king, Jerusalem. I am your king, O Israel. And the crowds, the crowds that followed him from Galilee in the north, uh, finally, they turn a corner. They acknowledge, finally, Jesus is the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Save. Remember, Hosanna just means save, please. Save, please, Lord, by the son of David. And then we saw that transition. As he's entering Jerusalem, there's a kind of a handoff because now the question is, all right, Galilee is saying, Hosanna to the son of David. How is Jerusalem and how are the Jerusalem crowds going to respond? We kind of see that in verses 10 and 11. Um, Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred up. It's disturbed. Whoa, who is this? What is this? Who is this one claiming to be king? Who is this? And at least the crowds kind of give the common knowledge. The crowds in Jerusalem give the common knowledge. Oh, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So that's Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Now the question is, okay, if that's Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, where, what, what's he going to do? If he's coming as king, he's declaring to Israel, he is the true and rightful king over Israel and over the whole world. What's the first action that he is going to do as that king coming into Jerusalem? What's he going to do? Well, what we see in the text this morning is the very first place he goes is the temple the temple. Now, we need to talk a minute uh, before we jump into the text proper about the temple, because we don't think uh, in terms of a temple, usually, as Christians. Now, um, sometimes we think, oh yeah, the temple's gone now. There is no temple. That's actually not true. We still have a temple. There's always been a temple. There will always be a temple. What's the temple all about? The temple is all about the concentrated manifestation of God's presence on earth. If you want to draw near to God's presence, his presence to bless, you want to draw near to that, you go to the temple. And so we saw, we saw that, you see that throughout the scriptures. You see the original kind of um, uh, temple, so to speak, in Eden, the Garden of Eden. You see it in the tabernacle, which is supposed to remind you of Eden, and the temple, which is also supposed to remind you of Eden. And so if you want to go and worship the Lord, part of that worship is going to the temple and offering sacrifices and prayer. And so what Jesus is going to do, he's going to go to the temple. He's going to go to the center hub of worship in Israel, in Jerusalem. And since he's going to the temple, he's going to be talking about worship. And that raises a question for us this morning. How do you conceive of worship? When I use that word worship, what comes to your mind when is it might be another interesting question. When is worship? When do you do worship? What is it? What comes to mind? But when is it? 
And here's another question, why do you do it? Why do you do it? How do you think of worship? You see, sometimes we just think of worship as singing, right? We often call the music team the worship team, as if that's all that encapsulates worship. We think of music, and that is worship. There's no doubt about it. That is worship. But worship is so much more than that biblically. You see, worship is all about seeing who God is, his identity, and his actions, his deeds, and then worship after seeing those things, after seeing those truths about who God is and what he's done, worship is then the proper God-defined whole life response to that. Uh, It is seeing who God is, it is seeing what he has done, and then it is responding properly, not in just any old way you would think, uh, but the way that God defines it. Worship is the proper response, and it encompasses all of life. It encompasses all of life. It includes things like singing, but it also includes things like prayer and obedience and service and how you do your job and how you function as a mom and dad at home. All of life is worship because all of life is to be lived uh, looking and focusing on the one true God, loving him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as Jesus enters the temple here, we're automatically in the realm of worship And Jesus is going to address issues of corrupt worship this morning, manipulative worship. And so that brings us to the big idea of our text this morning. Manipulate worship of God to promote yourself, and Jesus will overturn your thievery. Manipulate worship of God to promote yourself, and Jesus will overturn your thievery. And we're going to see two parts in this text this morning, uh, kind of descriptions of manipulative worship descriptions in the center, the hub, the beating heart of worship in Israel's life, we're going to see some descriptions of manipulative worship that translate even into our day. So first, in verses 12 through 14, we see this, manipulative worship focuses on self rather than approaching God. Manipulative worship focuses on self rather than approaching God. Look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple. Okay, now we're going to pause there because, again, we don't have a spatial sense. Uh, For Israelites, for a first century Israelite, the temple is the beating heart of worship. In Israel, we don't have a spatial sense of, well, where is the temple? How big is it? Where is it in relation to where Jesus just entered? So I've got a slide for you to help us out a little bit just to visualize what's going on here. So can you kind of see that on the screen there? This is, this is a uh, 3D reconstruction of first century Jerusalem. And what you have to understand, that kind of the green area there to the bottom of the picture, that's the Mount of Olives and the Valley Kidron, okay? So that's where Jesus just entered. He came down that hill. He came down from the Mount of Olives. Uh, so the bottom part of the picture, he came down towards the temple on his donkey, okay? Now, he enters the temple, Now, when it says he enters the temple, uh, you have to understand that we're talking about a temple complex. So this big old square, well, it's not a square, it's a rectangle. Uh, This big old rectangle here, this big old platform 
That is the temple complex. In the center, you can see that building is the temple proper, where things like the Holy of Holies are, and the altar, and that sort of a thing. But you've got this giant temple complex. I read a commentary this week that said the temple complex, that platform, which still stands today, that's where the Dome of the Rock is in Jerusalem, that temple uh, platform is the size of 35 football fields. It's massive. It's massive. And think about the time. It's Passover time. You've got Jews not only from Israel, from Palestine, but from all over the diaspora, uh, from all over the world where they've been scattered, coming in to Passover in Jerusalem. They're entering this temple. So Jesus enters this temple. Now, where does he enter? Scholars think he probably entered on the southern edge. Now, the southern edge is, you see that long, kind of reddish-roofed building on the left side of the picture? You see that? That's probably where Jesus entered. Uh, that little building there with the long red roof, it's called the Royal Stoa. It's got a bunch of pillars in it. Uh, and all, uh, the only reason I mention that is this is probably where Jesus enters, and it's probably the location for what happens next. So he's not in the central stru temporal structure yet. He's in the complex. The other thing you have to realize about this complex is it's layered. It's layered. In the court in general... If you're a Gentile, you could enter. If you were a Gentile person, you could enter this court. Uh, but then as you got closer and closer to the center, the temple structure, soon only if you're an Israelite can you enter. Uh, and then so that you had the court of the Gentiles. Okay, that's the big old, that's everything. Then as you get closer, there's the court of, uh, the, uh, the court of women where any Israelite, including women, could go. And then there's the court of Israelite men, and then there's only the place where the priests could go. So as you get closer and closer to this temple structure, as you're getting closer and closer to the manifestation of God's presence on earth, only certain people could go. But Jesus enters kind of where that red roof building is, and what happens next probably happens in that area. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Okay? Now, we're familiar with this story. Um, very interesting. Uh, it's unexpected, right? We don't think of Jesus in these terms often. But he goes into the temple, but be very attentive to what it says. First, he drove out all who sold and bought Okay, now what's the selling and buying that's happening here? This is why I mentioned that red roof building on the left, the royal stove with all those pillars and stuff. The, the, the selling and the buying was probably happening in that area, okay? The selling and the buying is for sacrificial animals, sacrificial animals. You come to worship, you're going to bring a sacrifice, and so you need, um, you need a sacrifice. Now, you've got a couple options. One, you could bring your own uh, sacrifice, you could bring your own animal to the temple, but it had to be approved. It had to be without blemish. Uh, but suppose you're far away away. Maybe you're just as far away as Galilee. That's a long way to transport a sacrificial animal. And what if the animal gets sick and dies on the way? You know, um, so what the law provided for, you can actually see this in the Old Testament, is saying, all right, if it's too far away from the temple, from where God puts his name to where you come, uh, you can sell your sacrificial animal, get the money, and then go to wherever the temple is, wherever God puts his name, buy another animal uh, uh, or another, you know, whatever it happens to be, whether it's 
uh, an animal or grain offering or a wine offering or whatever it happens to be, you can buy another one there. You can buy another one there. So the law actually made stipulation for this, okay? And so what's happening here is that the priests, or those at least authorized by the priests, have set up booths that have pre-approved animals, right? Uh, it's, uh, it's like those letters you get in the mirror. You're pre-approved, right? Well, uh, the priests have all these pre-approved sacrificial animals, and all you need to do is you've got your money, and you pay, and I get a sacrifice. I go into the temple precincts, and I sacrifice my animal. So you got selling and buying going on. But you might be like, hey, what about the money changer thing? What's the deal with the money changers? Well, here's another component of what was happening. Do you remember chapter 17 and the temple tax? Remember when Peter goes, eventually goes fishing and gets that money to pay this temple donation? Uh, well, what that would happen is the month before Passover, is they would send out kind of collectors to collect some of that revenue or that donation. Technically, it's a donation. Um, but if you came and you hadn't paid that and you hadn't paid that donation, you could do that in the temple. Now imagine you're coming from way far away as a Jew, maybe you're not even in Israel, uh, and you need the certain currency, they only took certain currency to pay this temple donation, a silver coin from Tyre, okay? Well, you're coming not with that money, you're coming with some other coinage. So what do you need to do? You need to go to the foreign exchange and you need to translate your money into the proper currency to pay the proper temple donation. That's what the money changers are all about, okay? So that it's a foreign exchange. Uh, all right, I don't, I, I have this kind of money. Well, that's not the right money. All right, uh, trade it in for a certain surcharge. You can get it translated into proper uh, silver Tyrian coin so that you can pay the temple donation. Okay, so that's what's going on. What about the pigeons? Uh, it's interesting. Matthew uh, highlights that uh, Jesus overturns the seats of these, these uh, people who sold pigeons. Well, if you look back into the law in the Old Testament, um, the pigeons were kind of the low totem pole sacrifice. In other words, uh, ideally you would sacrifice a sheep or a bull or something like that, depending on what it was. But if you couldn't, the law made provision and said, all right, you can't make that. Go ahead and just sacrifice a pigeon. So why those selling pigeons, we're talking about selling to the poorest people um, so that they can make a sacrifice in the temple. All right. So that's what's going on. Jesus hates it. He is upset. He is angry. He's enraged. Jesus is enraged at this. Pretty clear when you're flipping over tables and chairs, and not just a little bit, like not just a little corner of the temple. It's like you can imagine him going up and down that colonnade maybe and flipping tables over. And notice, is he only driving out the sellers? No, he's not just driving out the sellers. Sometimes we read this passage, he's like, oh man, those corrupt sellers, they're just bilking people out of their money, so Jesus is upset at the, the dishonesty. Maybe, but that's not actually what the text says, and there's not that much evidence to support that. He's driving out both the sellers and the buyers. In other words, he's driving out both the you know, authorized temple personnel but he's also driving out those who have come to worship by sacrifice. Why is that? Why is that? Why is Jesus so upset? Now, he's going to explain it a little bit more, but we already have one indication in the Old Testament. Go to Zechariah. You don't have to go that far. Go to the left. 
You go to the left one of Matthew, you're in Malachi. You go to the left one more, you're in Zechariah. Zechariah, uh, one of the things Zechariah the prophet is doing is seeking to motivate God's people, return from the exile, the destruction of the first temple, uh, to build the second temple, which ultimately kind of transitioned into the temple in Herod's day in the first century. Um, But one of the things that happens, we kind of saw this last week in Zechariah, or uh, last time we were in Matthew, in Zechariah 9, there's a picture of what the future is going to hold when God regathers Israel, when he establishes um, rule over Israel and over all the world. Um, What happens is that there's this picture of gathering, there's this picture, picture of the restoration of worship and the temple. Look at the very end of Zechariah, Zechariah 14, 20, and 21. So this is the vision for the future. God regathers Israel. God restores worship. uh, The Messiah is on the throne, but the temple is restored here. Look at uh, Zechariah 14, 20, and 21. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to Yahweh. And the pots in the house of Yahweh shall be as the bulls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to Yahweh of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of Yahweh of hosts on that day. Did you see that? That ultimately in the final restoration of the temple, when, God, when everything is as God wants it, there's going to be no traitor, no financial transactions, no merchants in the temple. Which means what? God is opposed to financial transactions in the temple in principle. And that's exactly where all of this commerce is happening in Matthew 21. It's not so much that Jesus is angry at the sellers, although that is part of it. He's also angry at the buyers because this transaction should not be happening in the temple at all. You're like, why? Why does it matter? Well, think about what's going on here. It's super convenient to come up and say, well, I want to sacrifice. I want to, or I need to sacrifice. I need to pay my temple donation. Oh man, this is so convenient to have uh, the priest setting up this whole system, pre-approved animals. I can just pay my dues, grab my sacrifice, sacrifice it, get out of there, get on with my life. This is convenient worship. This is drive-through worship. And God and Jesus do not like convenient, pay-your-dues, drive-through worship. That's what Jesus is upset about. Now, he explains it more in what he says. Look at verse 13. He said to them, It is written, My house, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, there's actually two Old Testament texts at play here. One text from Isaiah 56, Jesus is quoting. That's the first part of what he says. And then the second part, he doesn't quote, but he alludes to it with the phrase den of robbers. Okay? So we're going to look at the first one. We're going to go back. Anytime this happens, we've done this many times throughout Matthew. Anytime Jesus or Matthew or whoever, a New Testament author, quotes an Old Testament text, that's a hint that you should go back there, look at the original context, because they're not just pulling that one verse, they're pulling on the whole surrounding context, okay? So let's go to Isaiah 56. 
Isaiah 56. Isaiah, and this section of Isaiah, much like Zechariah, although earlier, Isaiah is written before Zechariah, many, many hundreds of years, a couple hundred years, um, Isaiah is also looking ahead. He's looking ahead to the restoration of Israel, but not just Israel, but all the nations of the world. And he's looking forward to them worshiping on God's holy mountain. The holy mountain is where God's temple is, God's presence is. And so you see a picture of this in Isaiah 56. I'm going to back up to verse 6, but verse 7, a part of verse 7 is what Jesus actually quotes. Isaiah 56, verse 6. And the foreigners, so the foreigners here, that's people from all the nations, not just Israel, but outside of Israel. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, i.e. the temple, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord Yahweh who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And so you see what's happening in this passage. God is saying the restoration of the temple, the restoration of Israel, it's going to be um, a, a gathering point, not only for Israel, it's going to be a gathering point for all the nations. And it's what? It's going to be a house of prayer. Meaning what? What is prayer? Prayer is communicating with God. Where do you go to pray? You go to the temple. You go to the temple because that's where the concentrated manifestation of God's presence is. So you draw near to his presence to commune with him, to speak with him by prayer. That is God's design for the temple. That is God's design for worship. The design of worship is drawing near to God, focus on God, having a relationship with God, communing with God, enjoying God, loving God. It's to be about prayer. It's a two-way street of communication. God reveals himself to us, and we respond. Respond in many ways, but one of those key ways is prayer. Jesus is saying that's what the temple is designed to be. If we look through to history, the future of what things are going to look like, it looks like all the nations streaming to God's holy mountain in worship and in prayer. And Jesus is saying that's the design. That's where we're headed, but second part of verse 13 You are making it a hideout of bandits. Now, you might think, oh, he's talking about, and this is where that interpretation goes, that, oh, the sellers must be bilking people out of their money. He's rebuking them. But remember, he's rebuking the buyers and the sellers. So why is that? Well, here he's not quoting another Old Testament passage, but he is alluding to one. Go to Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, it's very interesting because it's very, very, well, this is why Jesus quotes it, it's very, very similar setup to his own day. Jeremiah writes uh, during the exile of Judah from the southern kingdom, the destruction of the first temple, the Solomon's temple, and notice what happens in Jeremiah 7. I'm going to read at length because we want to understand the context in which Jesus is alluding to here, in this context of the idea of den of robbers. 
So look at uh, Jeremiah 7, verse 1. Again, we're trying to, Jesus just says something like that, and he's expecting the audience to just get all the context. We have to do a little bit more work to see what that context was. So that's why we're doing all of this. Jeremiah 7, 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh. Stand at the gate of Yahweh's house, that's the temple, and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you men of Judah and those who enter these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in their deceptive words. This is the t- what are the deceptive words? This is the temple of Yahweh. The temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. In other words, they're saying the temple is so important and so great that uh, we're invincible. And you'll see that as we go. Verse 5, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares Yahweh. And what is God saying through Jeremiah? He's saying, look, you guys think the temple is great. It's like a rabbit's foot. It's like a talisman. It makes you invincible. It makes you invincible because no matter what you do, whether you oppress your neighbor, you don't love your neighbor, or you go after other gods, you are saying, well, I can just, you know, I can do all this mischief like a bandit. I can go out and do all this mischief and then I'll go back to my hideout. Where's the hideout? The temple. I can go back to the temple and I can be covered. Doesn't matter what I do, I've got the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I'm safe. I'm delivered. Like a robber going to his hideout. And what does God say about all of this? Verse 13, excuse me, verse 12. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. Now, Shiloh was where the tabernacle first dwelled in the land of Israel, okay? So he's still talking about the temple there. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares Yahweh, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called to you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will go to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast all of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. And what is God saying? He's saying, hey, go to the first temple. I wiped it out because of Israel's wickedness, because of the very same things you're doing. So don't think you can retreat to the temple and be okay when it's totally hypocritical, uh, when you can see what I did to Shiloh, I'll do the exact same thing to your temple. Now, that is the background that Jesus is citing. Go back to Matthew 21. So what is Jesus saying in verse 13? He's saying, 
Isaiah and the prophets say in the future, all the nations, everyone, Israel, everyone is going to come and they're going to have right worship, right prayer in the house of God. But what are you doing instead of that? You're making it into a hideout of robbers. And what is he saying? He's saying, okay, all of you who are doing this financial transaction in the temple, uh, remember, remember Jesus' address? Remember John the Baptist's address? What has their message essentially been from day one? They've been addressing the nation saying, repent for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. Everyone, not just the temple leadership, but the whole nation needs to repent, to turn their allegiance from sin and self and to oh, Uh, to trust themselves to God's Messiah, to entrust themselves to God, to seek true worship. And what Jesus is doing by doing this in the temple, he's saying, you guys are living the way you want to live, and then you're just coming to the temple, paying your dues, uh, drive-by worship, and then you go and you think it's okay. And it's the same thing that was happening in Jeremiah's day. You're treating it like a hideout of bandits. You go do and live however you want, like a bandit. And then you come to the temple at Passover and you do this, uh, you pay your dues, you think God's happy with you, and then you leave and and you live however you want. And what Jesus is saying, just like Jeremiah is saying, judgment is coming. That's why he's flipping over tables and, and, and chairs and stuff, because he's saying, this place is going to be overthrown. This place is going to be overthrown. Why? Because of manipulative, corrupt worship. What are these people focused on? Buyers and sellers. They're focused on themselves. They're focused on uh, using the temple as a means to an end. Of using worship as a means to an end. As long as I can pay my dues and God's happy with me and fine, then I can live however I want. And that's manipulative worship. Because what is worship supposed to be? It's not a means to an end. It is the end. Worship and delight and direction to the one true and living God of the universe. He's not a means to an end. He is the end and joy and fulfillment of our soul. So Jesus drives these people out. But he doesn't just drive these people out. There's a development. Look at verse 14. Look at what happens next. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, you might not think initially that that's that important of a statement, but it is profound. You might not think it's that important because Jesus has been healing the blind and the lame throughout Matthew, which is true. Um, But what is going on here? Well, first, in Matthew, the blind and the lame and Jesus healing them, that's a signature messianic move. Remember, we've talked about that. That is, Jesus heals the blind and the lame. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. That's what the son of David is supposed to do. And so he does that. So he's reiterating his Messiahship. But there's more to it even than that. If you were to go back, we don't have to. We won't do it. You can go back later if you want. Uh, 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 9, you would find that when David went to take Jerusalem, to conquer it, to make it his capital. The Jebusites, which are these Canaanites who are dwelling in Jerusalem that David has to conquer, they say, ah, you're not going to come in here, David. The blind and the lame are going to keep you away. And the idea is, is that uh, Jerusalem's so well fortified that uh, the blind and lame could keep you out. 
Well, um, uh, David ends up taking Jerusalem and he says, we're going to strike the blind and the lame. We're going to deal with the blind and the lame so that I can take Jerusalem. And he does. And in verse 8 of 2 Samuel 5, 8, it says that the blind and the lame will not enter the house because of it. Which house? I believe in context, it's talking about the temple. The blind and the lame can't enter the temple. First, you deal with the blind and the lame if you're going to take Jerusalem. How did Jesus just enter Jerusalem? He entered it as a king, as its rightful king. If the king is going to take Jerusalem, he's got to deal with the blind and the lame, just like David dealt with the blind and the lame. And more than that, the blind and the lame, they can't enter the temple. You look at Acts 3, you see a lame man that, um, that gets healed, but he's sitting outside that temple structure, that central structure, right outside the gate, the gate beautiful. He's sitting right outside because he's lame. But what does Jesus do here? Jesus, as the Davidic king, as the son of David, does deal with the blind and the lame, but how? Through healing. Through healing so that what? They can draw near. They can enter the temple in proper worship. The blind and the lame throughout Matthew have been kind of these examples of true faith. We've seen the blind men have mercy on us, son of David. And here we see them approaching again in dependence, in faith to Jesus. And he heals them so that they can draw near to God in true worship. Jesus is the son of David. He deals with the blind and the lame to take Jerusalem. He heals them so that they can approach and come into the house. This is Jesus' opening shot to Jerusalem. He's confronting Jerusalem because of its corrupt worship. And what we will see is, on the other side, Jerusalem with its crowds, with its temple leadership, with others who have corrupt worship, they're going to stand on the other side. This is the issue that's going to get Jesus killed. He takes his stand here. We return to our question that we asked at the beginning, given what we see of Jesus here. What is your conception of worship? Does it only happen on Sunday? Now, it ought to happen on Sunday. Remember I said that there's a temple in every age? The temple now is the local church. It's not this building. It's this, these people, people who are members of Faith Bible Church. They are the living stones that have been assembled in, that assemble each Sunday as a temple where God's presence dwells in a concentrated way. So worship ought to be happening on Sunday in the local church, but it should not only happen there. What is your conception of worship? Does it only happen on Sunday, or does it encompass your entire life? Is worship just about you checking the boxes and paying your dues so that God is fine with you? Is that why you come? Is that why you come? Okay, I can give up an hour or two on Sunday because, you know, um, I can check the boxes. God's going to be fine with me, and then I can go about my life just the way I please. Or is it about your delight in approaching the living, one, true, and majestic God? Because nothing else that you could be trying to manipulate worship for, trying to manipulate God for, to go after, nothing can hold a candle. Nothing can hold anything to the one, true, and living God and his beauty and his majesty. Is your approach in worship about that God, about drawing near to him? and responding to him in joy, or is it about paying your dues? 
Is it about drive-by worship? Is Christianity a means for your own goals, or is Christ your goal? Right? You can come here and say, well, it develops, I think Andre mentioned this in one of his sermons, right? That, that um, you could come here and you could gather and you could use the church for business contacts, you know, to p- promote your business, or maybe you just like the camaraderie, you like the friendship, they're nice people. Well, then you're manipulating worship because now worship is about your own ends apart from God rather than God, rather than Christ being your goal. Is Christianity a means for your own goals, or is Christ your goal? Is it a tool for you? Is worship a tool for you, a means of manipulation to get something else you want, or is God the one you want? And friend, if you're in that pattern of manipulation, you will not be satisfied. You may think this other thing, this other idol, this other desire will fulfill you. It will not. Only the one true God approached through the work of Jesus Christ can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Is worship about convenience for you? or about approaching a holy and a good God. Jesus is opposing this because this is drive-by worship. This is easy, and our culture loves convenient worship. Oh, we saw that during the pandemic. Let's do online church. Online church is not church because church is gathering, assembling together to form this temple structure. So you can sit at home. You can get the same sermon. You can get the same music. You're not gathering but it's convenient. So we'll just stay at home and we'll stream things. I'll stream my favorite preacher. I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it's all about convenient worship, convenience for you. Or maybe you're, um, you know, you're looking for a church. People look for a church and what do they look for? Does it, do I like the music? Do I like the programs? Do I like the kids ministry? All of those things are, you know, they, they have their place, but worshiping about you. It's not about you. It's not about your convenience because it's about approaching a holy and a good God who is awesome and you are privileged to draw near to him and you can only draw near to him through Jesus Christ. And that leads us to another question. Are you following God's directions and definitions of worship? So much goes under the heading of worship. Well, I'm going to feel um, ecstatic and I'm going to roll around on the floor and throw off my clothes um, and that's worship. No, it's not because God does not authorize that. God has a definition and a program for worship because he is a holy and a true God. You don't approach him in the right way. You are vaporized. Worship is to happen in the context of the temple and of the local church. That's why people say, well, I'm going to go out in creation and I'm going to worship God there. No, you're not. You're actually in disobedience to God because God stipulates worship happens in the temple. Worship happens in the local church. Does your life look different during the week because of your worship of Christ that you profess on Sunday? Or do you pretty much live like the rest of the world during the week and then retreat to the church on Sunday to supposedly get God's protection? Friends, that is the worship of bandits and thieves. God will not give his glory to another. God hates glory thieves. And he will deal with you. If that is the way you are acting and operating, please repent because Jesus will come and overturn your life in judgment. But the good news in this, you see it in verse 14, 
Jesus makes it possible for those who were not able to approach God in worship, like the blind and the lame, he makes it possible for us to approach God truly. How is he doing that? We see a picture of it with him healing the blind and the lame so that they can come into the temple. But we know in the context of Matthew that Jesus is living the perfect, lived-in-flesh human life so that he can die in place of his sinners, his people as sinners, taking their sin on himself, being a substitute, and also their righteousness in their place so that God can allow the filthiest sinner to draw near to his holy temple, to draw near to his presence. Why? Because he sees that person through repentance, turning allegiance from sin and self, laying down arms, surrendering, and entrusting oneself to Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and in his resurrection. God then sees each person who comes through Christ, through the lens of Christ, so that just as Jesus could stroll right up to the Holy of Holies because of who he is, we also have that boldness and access with confidence through Jesus Christ. It is such good news. If you have not repented and placed your faith in Christ, if you are longing and hungering for your soul's satisfaction in God, then it can happen today, but only if you lay down arms, living for yourself, manipulating worship, and instead swear allegiance to Jesus Christ and follow him, and he will lead you right into the holy of holies of God's presence. Well, we've seen first that manipulative worship focuses on self rather than approaching God, but there's a little bit more to it. Point two in verses 15 through 17, manipulative worship will not celebrate Jesus as the son of David. Manipulative worship will not celebrate Jesus as the son of David. Look at verse 14. Excuse me, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes, now the chief priests and the scribes, they're like the temple leadership, okay? They have their own roles, but they're the temple leadership. So Jesus has been in focus. He's been the one who's been tossing over tables and chairs, and he's been healing people. But now the question is, how is the temple leadership going to respond? And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, so they saw the wonderful things, the marvelous things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. And remember that cry? That's a kind of a praise prayer. It's like God saved the king. It's save Lord by the son of David. God saved by your anointed one. Saved by the ultimate Davidic king who's going to rule over Israel and over the whole world. And notice who's crying it out, children. And just like the blind and the lame, children in the book of Matthew have been archetypes of examples, patterns of true faith. They are utterly dependent, and that's what we see here. They have it right. This is the son of David, saved by the son of David. The temple leadership sees the remarkable things that Jesus is doing. They see the children crying out. They were indignant. What does that mean to be indignant? It means that you see something that you think ought not to be happening, and it stirs your rage and your ire. It's, it's a sort of sense of justice. That's what anger does. Like, you see something that should not be happening, and you're like, that's not right, and you're angry about it. That's indignation, and that's what the temple leadership. We didn't authorize this. We, yeah, we see the marvelous things that Jesus is doing, but we didn't authorize this. 
And so what do they do? Verse 16, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Meaning what? They're saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, if you're actually listening to what these kids are saying, they're saying, save please, Lord, by the son of David. They're identifying you with the son of David. They're identifying you with the Messiah. That can't be right. Shut them up. Quiet them. Because they're not right. Because it's not authorized by what? Us. Do you hear what these are saying? If you did, you'd, you'd quiet them up. What does Jesus say? And Jesus said to them, yes. Yes. Meaning what? They're right. I hear it. And they're right. And then he goes on to explain. Have you never read? Which is a dig, right? Because here we're talking some experts. We're talking to the temple leadership. We're talking scribes. Uh, we got some experts here. Haven't you ever read this? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Got more Old Testament. You don't know your Old Testament. You won't know your New Testament. Psalm 8. Go to Psalm 8. Again, we want to go back and understand the context so that we understand the full freight of what Jesus is doing in this passage. Psalm 8. I'm going to read the whole psalm. It's short, and it gives you the context of what's happening here. Psalm 8, a psalm of David. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little while lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now you see where Jesus is quoting from. He's quoting from verse two, but the context of the whole Psalm is David praising God for yes, his creative ability, but more the fact that because um, that God is so high and yet he chooses very weak human beings like the son of man that's just a generic title for human beings in general, weak son of um, weak humankind. He uses them to what? To silence his foes. So you see there in verse 2, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The idea is God's going to get praise for himself by establishing strength through those who are weakest to humiliate his enemies. And so now you go back to Matthew 21 and you think about how Jesus is using this. Jesus said to them, to the chief priests and the scribes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And what is Jesus saying? He's saying the kids are right. Hosanna to the son of David. They're identifying me with the son of David and they're asking God to save by me and they are right. They are God's means to acclaim me in this instance as the son of David. And more than that, Jesus looks pretty weak in the temple right now. Yes, he flipped over a few tables and chairs. And yes, he's done some marvelous things. But he looks like a weak prophet from Nazareth, a Galilee. 
But ultimately, what Psalm 8 is about is God's going to use the weak things, even humanity, even the Son of Man, to rule over the world and over his created power. So Jesus looks weak now, and some kids acclaiming him and his, to be the Son of David looks weak now, but he is the one who will sit on the throne, not only over Israel, but also fulfilling what humanity was designed to do as described in Psalm 8. And how does it all end? He says that to the chief priests and the religious leaders, to the chief priests and the scribes, the temple leadership, verse 17, and, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now, that kind of feels like a throwaway geographic statement, but it's not. So remember what just happened in chapter 21. He rides down, you can look at the picture again if you want, from the Mount of Olives, so that green area in the, uh, the bottom of the photograph, he rides in, in no uncertain terms, declares himself to be the king of Israel and king of Jerusalem, walks into the temple, does all of this, um, critiques the worship and the structure that is happening there. Well, what should Jerusalem do? They should welcome him and house him in Jerusalem. But instead... The opposition set up here means what? He's leaving. He's leaving and he goes back to the city of Bethany. Where's Bethany? On top of the Mount of Olives. So he leaves, he goes back to Bethany, and he stays the night there. It's a foreshadowing of things to come. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to say more in Matthew that the temple's over, or at least this temple is over. It's corrupt. God's going to judge it. Jesus is going to judge it, and he's going to leave. Not forever, but until, as he will say at the end of chapter 23, until Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What do we learn from this second part? Well, again, it's about... The, the religious leaders, the temple leadership, they see, they see the wonders that Jesus is doing. They see the praise, and because it didn't come from them, because they're more concerned about them, themselves and guarding their leadership, they're not going to celebrate Jesus to be the son of David. Do you joyfully own Jesus to be the son of David like those kids and your king, or are you embarrassed and indignant about his identity? Many Christians today who go under the name of Christianity, they get embarrassed to hear that Jesus is king. They get embarrassed to hear that Jesus has demands on your life. They get embarrassed to hear that Jesus is going to judge. But he is the son of David, which means he is the ruler over all the world, which means he is the ruler of you, which means he has something to say to you. He will rescue you, yes, and he will rescue you to be his subject as king. Do you celebrate that reality? Or are you embarrassed? Ah, Jesus is king over the world. I don't know about that. I don't, I don't really want to talk about Jesus in my work or in my spheres of life. No, if we celebrate Jesus to be the son of David, then we're going to speak about him. We're going to acclaim him like this because he has brought us near to worship the one true and holy God. The warning in this passage is this. Manipulate worship of God to promote yourself and Jesus will overturn your thievery. But if you come in sincerity, if you come in humility, if you come in repentance and faith to Jesus, he will draw you near to the one true and living God.
Let's pray. Jesus, you don't fit anyone's box, and we're thankful for that. You are who you are, and you are the king. We praise you. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna, save, Lord, please, by the son of David. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want you to come again. We want you to establish pure worship over the whole earth as that king in Jerusalem. Lord, help us. Lord, we are so good at manipulating worship to be about us. Lord, give us hearts that want to pursue you, to love you, to delight in you with all of who we are. Help us to live this week not completely different than we lived on Sunday, but completely in line with it, acclaiming you as king and waiting for your return. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.